Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer here with Carlos Colazzo to break down the 2020 draft and the latest developments with you today. Obviously, there's no baseball being played on the field, but the draft is still on. We don't know when it will be. We don't know how many rounds it will be, but we know there will be a draft. As such, scouts and teams as a whole are still digging in, doing a lot of work, a lot of video scouting, a lot of teleconferencing to break down players. So it's different, but scouting operations are still going full steam. Carlos Colazzo, our draft expert, is here to join us. Carlos, we just updated our BA draft rankings to 400 players. There are players moving up and down simply because teams are scouting and changing their assessments of guys. What were some of the most notable developments in our most recent update to 400 players? I think the most obvious one is just that we, we added 50 more scouting reports. So we're kind of continuously adding those scouting reports as we kind of refine our information and get the time to write all those reports. Um, but like you said, there are still some some movers at the top. It's obviously not a ton of movement just because there are no games playing. So players themselves can't really change how they're being evaluated. But I think it's a really fascinating time for us at Baseball America just because I feel like this year, while obviously we would definitely prefer watching games, we have so much more time to kind of refine our information, whether that's just looking more at what we already have and kind of being a little bit more thorough since things aren't changing or simply gathering just more and more and more information from different sources uh, because everything is kind of static. Scouts have more time to talk with us and talk through players uh, who haven't changed because they're not playing any games. So from an information standpoint, um, we have a chance to really refine everything that we have and really try and gauge the industry consensus on these players um, probably at a better level than we ever could in another situation, just because there's so much movement typically. Um, but now it's really kind of nice. Uh, I guess this is kind of a silver lining of this situation to be able to just get much more feedback than maybe we would in previous years, just because nothing's happening. Um, so while there's not a ton of change as far as players, like showing a new tool or showing a more refined approach, um, as far as like how our, how our process works, I think it is beneficial uh, for myself and how kind of I see this class and hopefully how readers are able to see the class through maybe the industry's eyes. Um, there are still some movers. I think some of the guys who are moving up boards now, it's just kind of those typical players that, that tend to move up even, that tend to move up when you are playing games, the, the profiles that teams like college hitters. I think we're seeing a lot of teams um, at least talk to me um, and kind of how they're preferring these college hitters. I mean, I think we're definitely going to see a college heavy draft this year, but just the more and more people that I talk to, there's a lot of safety you can feel with these college hitters. Guys like Dylan Dingler, I think is a good one. He's just kind of that all around catcher profile at the college level that teams like. He's a guy that moved up in our latest update. And then there are guys like, and we can get into a few more of these players later. There are guys like Nick York, who I don't know if he did a ton to change who he is as a player, but it's just, we kind of caught up to that information. I think this is kind of how the process works in general. We're behind the industry. They, they've seen these guys, and we're constantly trying to make those calls to catch up. York is a guy who just seems like a really polished hitter um, and wasn't at a ton of these summer or fall events, so I was less aware of him than perhaps I should have been, but now we have the time to kind of catch up and get that information. So those are two players who have moved up in our board for different reasons, but um, again, it all stems from kind of continuing to make calls and gather more and more information. Yeah, based on your calls with scouts, how are evaluators adjusting to this draft? I remember talking to an area scout yesterday, actually, who said he feels like, you know, he's kind of scouting for the NFL draft. Obviously, NFL mm -hmm. scouting is so, so, so video heavy. And he feels mm -hmm. like he's kind of, you know, changed streams on that. But he also said he feels like it's made him a better scout, a more well-rounded scout, because while there was obviously always a video component, mm -hmm. now it's becoming so video heavy. You don't always have the angles you want. It's not always every single swing you want to see. But it gives you an idea and it helps you kind of make some, some different types of scouting assessments. It seems like evaluators are adjusting based on my discussions actually remarkably well. I've been, I've really, really admired how flexible scouts have been given this situation, not knowing mm -hmm. in some cases if they're going to be employed past a certain date or paid past a certain date. Um, I found them to be very resilient and very creative on the whole. And I think it's a testament to them. No doubt. It's, it's been fun to talk with the guys and just see how their kind of process is changing. I've also talked to some scouts who are kind of 
they, they mentioned the NFL scouting comparison that you talked about. I talked with one guy who said he even reached out to an NFL scout uh, to see kind of how they went about scouting through video. Now he said there are a lot of things that NFL scouts can pick up, can pick up on video that are maybe more difficult um, with baseball, just because of the differences of the sport and, and what you're looking for there. But I think there are a lot of things that you could pick up on video that you can't uh, in person live, like slowing down a delivery, slowing down, uh, a hitting, uh, a swing from a hitter. Um, and I've talked with some guys who, who said you can really get a ton of nuance, uh, a very specific kind of mechanical things that you would always have to use a video for the things that you maybe don't have as much feel for is kind of how a player moves in the field, the physicality of the player, kind of the instincts, um, the internal clock, that kind of stuff you miss out on by not having those looks. Um, but I do think it's, it's nice to see, and like you said, they're probably always doing this video stuff. It's not like we never had video cameras before, but just kind of seeing how scouts are uh, just tapping into another skill uh, and finding value from it, I think is is fascinating just to hear about the process. But I do know a lot of guys are getting frustrated by just sitting down and watching video over and over again. These guys love to be at fields uh, and I don't blame them. I, I imagine video scouting is a lot more dull than actually watching a baseball game. So like you said, kudos to them for uh, grinding it out. Yeah, yeah, there's no question. I think everyone would love to be watching actual live baseball games. But again, you know, it's a lot of people making the best of the situation and uh, yeah. doing their job. And because they're watching this video, there is player movement. And as such, we're reflecting that on our BA Top 400 draft board. Mm -hmm. Carlos, you mentioned the top of the draft. It's going to be college heavy. Our top five players are all college players. And everyone we've talked to said, yeah, those are the top five. Mm -hmm. There's not really anyone else in the discussion up there. But there is a discussion who's number one, and this is different from recent years. Two years ago, Casey Mize was the number one prospect in the draft, pretty much wire to wire. Last year, Adley Rutschman was the number one prospect in the draft, wire to wire. There really wasn't a whole lot of debate who number one was. Mm -hmm. This year is a different situation. Spencer Torkelson, the first baseman at Arizona State, Austin Martin, the utility man, you can say, because he's played short, he's played third, he's played center field at Vanderbilt. They have flip-flopped at one and two for us on our board. Martin is currently at number one. Torkelson's currently at number two. However, you talk to various scouts around the game, and you will get different answers. Mm -hmm. You put Austin Martin at number one. What is the argument for him at number one over Torkelson based on what you're hearing, as well as just your general expertise in the draft to start with? Yeah, wow. Thanks for the kind words, Kyle. I've never been described as such an expert. But um, <laughs> no, I honestly kind of hate this because, like you said, the last two years is just easy. Um, Casey Mize established himself as that top player uh, very quickly into the season. He didn't really have to think about it. Adley Rutcherman, like you said, was a no-brainer last year. This year, it's not going to be that easy. I don't think there is a consensus in, in so far as everyone agrees that that one player is better than the other. I think from all the conversations I've had, it is either Martin or Torkelson, and it's just kind of what side do you line up with. Um, I think for me, my my personal bias, and, and those don't re reflect our rankings, it's kind of all driven by the industry um, for our list, but I think that if, if you do prefer Martin, what you like is just kind of the all-around profile he offers, the defensive value that you can get. Now, I think Martin, Torkelson, and even Nick Gonzalez, those are the guys that have the elite hit tools in this class. Um, I think you could argue like the upside is like plus plus hit tool for all of those guys. Um, they all got votes for, and that might be aggressive. These are all amateur guys, but like best hitters in the class. Like I think that's, that's probably fair. Um, but obviously Torkelson has that power and that's kind of the separator for him. He, he has got the most usable power in the class. Some of the best raw power in the class. Um, so I think the difference is if you like Martin, you just like that, that player who has a chance to play a premium defensive position whether that's center field, whether that's third base, I think most people probably are inclined to say he's not going to play shortstop. I would personally like to see him there just because I haven't seen much of him. But I think if you prefer Martin, it's he's got a great hit tool. He's got more power than you would think. He has a chance to be a plus defender in center field. He is a plus runner. So he can just offer uh, above average tools at a number of different positions while playing uh, a valuable defensive spot. So that's kind of the argument for Austin Martin. Um, and that's personally where I fall just watching him love the athleticism he offers the bat speed um, 
but I'll let you make the case for Spencer Torkelson, Kyle. I know you've talked with a lot of guys who've seen him. I think you probably would choose Torkelson as well personally. And I think it's kind of a fascinating discussion to have because these guys are so close. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things, and this is a debate that happens a lot. We hear a lot between amateur and pro scouts. Carlos really focuses on the amateur side. I'm our primary major league baseball guy, and I do a lot of our prospects work as well. So I come at this from a pro angle. And, you know, you just ran down Martin's tools. And to me, every single one of them seemed rich, not as a knock on him, but just because I actually have a story coming out on this in Baseball America. There's an average of one plus plus hitter every other draft. That Don't tell me that, Kyle. Come on. Don't tell me that. <laughs> um, there's an average of one every other draft. So to me, you know, if you talk about these three guys, saying all three have plus plus hit tools, to me, that's too rich. And, and I talked to some scouts about the tools. And for everyone else, it was more Martin is plus hit, yeah. average power, 55 run, which are all still really good tools. That means he's, you know, 280, 20, 20 bombs, you know, can steal 10 to 15 bases. That's a really good player. Um, one of the things to me that separates Spencer Torkelson is because one of the things that doesn't get talked about enough is Austin Martin's defense. The argument I feel like I hear for Martin is about the profile. The argument mm -hmm. I hear for Torkelson seems to be more about the player. And I'm a big fan of scout the player, not the profile. Always, yeah. always, always. Um, but with that, one of the things that came up was Martin moved off of third base because he was really, really having a difficult time throwing the ball. Um, Carlos, you played, I played, we've both been there. It's not fun when you're in your own head, you've got the yips, you're aiming the ball. And a lot of scouts I talked to said that's where Austin Martin was this spring. They've had concerns about his arm dang back to high school. Um, you know, I talked to one scout who said he watched him. It was almost kind of sad. He felt for the guy. He was too hopping, routine throws to first base. He was struggling in warmups to get the ball there in the air on, on target. Um, that's why they moved him to center field. And he's more of a 55 runner, which, you know, you look at most major league center fielders, they're all plus runners. Or runners. Yeah. So I, I think for me, the argument about Martin's profile kind of falls by the wayside. If he can't really throw and he's not fast enough for center field, well, he might end up being a left fielder, which again, he's going to be a very good player. He's either the number one, two or three prospect in this draft. This is not meant to be a knock on him. Mm -hmm. But if you take away like the profile aspect of what's his advantage over Torkelson. And for me, there isn't one Torkelson. It's at least two grades, better power. It's 70 power, every bit of it, you know, as a hitter, it might be 50, 55, but you know, just to put perspective, Pete Alonso is 50 hit 80 power. Spencer Torkelson's probably more 55 hit 70 power, but it's an impact hitter. That's a guy hitting again, 270 with 35 plus bombs a year. Mm -hmm. And he's also a really underrated athlete. Uh, he's a, a 55. It's an above average to plus defender at first base. There's a lot of people out there who think he can play the outfield. And, you know, there's a, there's a realistic scenario where each of these guys is playing the corner outfield and if they're both there, Torkelson's going to be the more impactful hitter. So for mm -hmm. me, I think just based off everything I've heard, what I've seen, I saw Torkelson a little bit this earlier this spring when I was out in spring training. I stopped over uh, at ASU for a bit. Mm -hmm. It just seems like there's so much conviction. This is going to be an impact middle of the order bat. He's not some base clogger. And even if he was, if he could hit like Pete Alonso, it doesn't matter. Who cares? Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's, he's a better athlete than people give him credit for. It just seemed like, you know, give me the impact bat. You know, Martin's a really good player. I can't emphasize this enough. It's just if you take away the advantages of the profile, and even if there were advantages of the profile, I still would take Torkelson because I mm -hmm. think you take the better player. But especially with the profile questions based on Martin's arm, I, I think that even furthers the separation where Torkelson to me is not only number one, but number one with a little bit of space. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair argument. And, and like I said, I go back and forth pretty much every day when I'm thinking about it through. Like, I, I can see the argument. It's definitely – you definitely have a safer outlook with Spencer Torkelson just because of that impact that he provides in the bat. I do think there are some legitimate question marks with Austin Martin. But at the same time, I'm going to bet on who I see as the superior athlete. Uh, I think he's got a chance – I saw him play center field. I thought he was very instinctive out there for not having played a ton – uh, I do think his speed is probably a half grade better than what, what you think. We've gotten above average and plus grades, but depending on how that turns out is obviously going to change his profile. It's an interesting conversation and it's going to be one that'll be fun to kind of look back on in five and 10 years, kind of seeing how these players turn out. Because at the end of the day, we're all just making uh, the most educated guesses we can about these players. And it's kind of up to them to go out and prove it. Uh, 
to us. So it'll be fun to see, but I'm fascinated to see how these guys go off the board because again, it like you just made a great, great case there. You can, you can line these guys up in either order. And I think it's perfectly fair, just kind of depending what you value, uh, what you think of those tools, kind of where they settle in your mind. So it's a fun conversation to have. I don't know if I prefer it to the uh, no doubt number ones uh, as far as draft rankings are concerned, but it's interesting. And again, keep in mind, folks, that the debate is something we're hearing from evaluators all across the game right now. This is a constant debate. Who's number one? I'm asking people this. Carlos is asking people this. Depending who you ask, we'll get different answers. And it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting. Carlos, other college bats that could go high in this draft, we've mentioned Nick Gonzalez at New Mexico State. He's a, a firm top five potential pick. There's Garrett Mitchell over at UCLA, who's incredibly toolsy, although there are some questions with the bat. But every year we see even more college hitters rise into the top 10 than maybe we expect. There are two players I wanted to highlight with you. Heston Kierstad, the corner outfielder at Arkansas, and Patrick Bailey, the catcher at North Carolina State. Both of them have come up in conversations as two players that we currently have ranked outside our top 10. But do not be surprised to see them sneak into the top 10. Kirsten even potentially into that 6th, 7th overall pick range. College bats always rise. These are two bats who it seems like every time we talk to someone's like, you know, these guys could sneak in there. What is the case for each of these two guys as potential top 10 picks? Yeah, I think both of them just bring very safe profiles to the table. You can feel really good about what they've done and kind of that floor that they're going to provide you. Not to say that they don't have any upside, but Kearsad, I think once we're kind of outside of that elite tier of college hitters, and I would even throw maybe Garrett Mitchell in if you want to include him. We have him at number six, so he's just outside of that top five group. Outside of those, these are the two top college hitters on our board at the moment. I'll talk about Kearsad first. I think he might be the safest bat in the draft class, again, outside of those top elite kind of college hitters we're talking about, which makes sense where he's ranked. Um, He's just a guy who's performed for three years at Arkansas. He's hit SEC pitching. He's hit SEC pitching with impact. Uh, He has wood bat track record. He was the best hitter on Team USA last year. Uh, Probably a corner outfielder, not going to do a ton for you with the glove, but he's a guy you can feel pretty confident that he's going to hit somewhere in the four, five, six, maybe even three hole um depending on your lineup but just a very very polished hitter I think scouts if we had a full season would have liked to see him uh, lower the strikeout rate a little bit but even with um, a bit of a high strikeout rate in college he kind of has the impact uh, to make you feel good about that bat Patrick Bailey kind of in the Shea Langoliers mold from last year uh, who obviously went in the top 10 to the Braves they're not the exact same player I think Bailey might offer a tick more uh, impact potential just with the power that he's shown in the ACC for two plus years. Um, but again, the best defensive catcher in this draft class, he's a guy who calls his own game, which I know scouts love to see at the college level where that rarely happens. Plus arm, plus receiving skills, plus blocking skills, just very safe bet to be uh, a valuable defender at the major league level. And those guys at because of the the risk demographic you have with high school catchers and just how valuable catchers are in general, a guy who's going to be a plus defender with a chance for solid average power potential as a switch hitter. There's a lot to like there. Um, And depending on how kind of the the signability stuff plays out in this year's draft class, wouldn't shock me at all to see either of those guys in the top 10 range. Josh Young last year got a steep discount. I think uh, Langoliers also was taken at a, a pretty solid under slot deal. So and even if it's not a huge underslot, it wouldn't surprise me to see these guys going in that kind of 7 to 12 rent, uh, pick range. I think talent fits there, depending on how you line up those high school hitters and pitchers above them. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at two players who project as everyday major leaguers. And we like to think there's a ton of those guys in each draft. And the answer is there isn't. If you have a chance to grab them, you do so early. And, and Kirstad and Bailey are two players that there seems to be a decent amount of conviction on. Uh, but either way, don't be surprised to see either of them taken in the top 10 picks. It's very much a possibility. Carlos, because of the shortened season especially, lining the prep guys up is very, very difficult this year because some players did not even get their seasons started before everything shut down. Other guys, especially the pitchers, only made one or two starts. And every year we see guys take steps forward, turn a corner, sometimes not even until May, and they really start to raise their profile. Mm -hmm. That said, there are three high school pitchers in this class that have kind of separated themselves as the top three. But talking to evaluators all around the game, 
you'll get three different answers as to who the number one guy should be, depending on who you talk to. Uh, Jared Kelly out of Texas, Mick Abel out of Oregon, and Nick Bitsko out of Pennsylvania, all high school right-handers with, with good stuff. Um, they've really, really drawn a lot of scouts' attention. All three should go in the first round this year as long as they make themselves signable. But lining all three of them up has proven tricky. Right now we have Jared Kelly as the top of these three high school pitchers. How close is it? Because I know you've talked to a lot of people, and the people I've talked to as well have said it's neck and neck, and, and they each have reasons to take the other two guys. Yeah, it's, it's very close. Like you said, we do have Jared Kelly as the top guy right now. He's 11, Mick Abel's 12. I had a couple of conversations specifically asking around the industry, like does Mick Abel need to be a – above Jared Kelly at this point. We got some really good feedback on kind of the, the growth he's shown this spring. He's showing a fastball up to like 99, 100 at his best in some bullpen sessions. He's gotten more physical. I think these guys are all interesting to talk through. And Nick Bitsko, he's ranked 19 right now, but I think he's probably closer to those two than just the numbers would suggest. It's just kind of how those bats fell. Um, but those are the top three guys. They all have now stuff. They all have frames that you can really like. I think Mick Abel is the most projectable of those guys. He's six foot five, 180, probably a little heavier than that now. Um, but he's probably got the most projection physically remaining. Jared Kelly is pretty filled out and physical now. Nick Bitsko, again, has a very pro-ready type frame now at six foot four, 220. Um, but all these guys have loud stuff. Kelly has the best uh, prep fastball in the class, a pitch that he was regularly up into the 97, 98 mile per hour range. Um, Mick Abel probably had the best breaking ball in the class, a really sharp slider that was pretty consistent. And then Nick Bitsko had a plus fastball and curveball combination, kind of a 12-6 hammer that I got to see last summer at East Coast Pro when he was in the 2021 class. And I also got to see him with USA Baseball, one of their 17U NTDP events. So I think all of these guys have like front of the rotation upside, maybe as like number two guys, just because of that loud stuff. It just depends on what you like. I think Kelly's biggest the biggest negative with Kelly is his breaking ball it hasn't been that kind of plus wipeout pitch that scouts want to see from the top um, prep pitcher in the class McAvil his stuff wasn't as consistently elite last summer it fluctuated a lot more and then I think with Bitsko you have more question marks because he was originally in the younger class you haven't seen him as much as you want uh, and is he going to like maintain that frame that he has now but Again, you could argue any of these guys as the top pitcher in the class, and I think you have a solid argument to make. Yeah, talking to some evaluators out here on the West Coast about Mick Abel, they're enthralled. And these are veteran evaluators who have been burned by high school right-handers before and look at them very, very warily. Um, yeah. Everything Mick Abel was showing from you know the present stuff, the body, the delivery, really seemed to check all the boxes. And you know, I had one evaluator say, you know, if someone took him in the top 10 picks, I, I think they made the right call. Um, yeah. People that's interesting. Really, really like him. Because you said McAble checking all the boxes. And I think that's definitely true. McAble and Jared Kelly were the only two unanimous uh, first-team All-Americans we have in our preseason list this year, which I think speaks to their talent and how they're seen. But McAble was number two in best fastball, number two in best fastball movement, number one in best breaking ball, number three in best changeup, number one in best command. So he was in all of these kind of top tools for the prep pitchers in the class. And I think that's very impressive. Not only is he have a couple of really loud tools, but he does everything pretty well, like you said. And if he can kind of consistently get to that plus fastball velocity, there's a ton to like, and he's only going to add more weight and add more strength in the future. So he's already a good pitcher now. Um, and it sounds like there's just more to come. So I, I think there's a lot to like with McCable. The top four high school bats, it's become an interesting discussion because we've seen a lot about Zach Veen recently. You've posted and written about him. Uh, he's shown up on some other sites, and he's a very, very good player, undeniably one of the top four high school players, position players, I should say, in this draft. Mm -hmm. He's going to go in the first round. He's a tremendous talent. One of the things that has been interesting to me to hear just talking to some upper-level evaluators when asking about him is they say, look, he's very, very good, but they do feel like some of the helium has been a little over the top in terms of separation between him and some of the other top prep bats in this draft, namely Austin Hendrick, Robert Hassel, Pete Crow Armstrong. Mm -hmm. They see those four as all grouped together. They don't see Veen as 
separating himself from that group, mm. a clear number one, where I think there's been a little bit of a perception just based off questions you've been getting in the chat. I got one in my most recent chat. There does seem to be a group that thinks that Veen is like the clear cut number one guy in this high school class, but talking to evaluators around the game, he might be number one, but it's a much closer, closer gap with yeah. the other bats. Yeah, I think that's generally true of all the rankings. I mean, people can really look at kind of the differences in the number beside your name, but there are 30 different clubs who have all kinds of different scouts who are all going to have different opinions. I do think most of the people I've talked with think Venus at the top of the Southfield group. Now you can debate how far ahead, how clustered they are all the time, but we have Zach Bean ranked number seven. We have Austin Hendrick ranked two spots below him at nine. So definitely don't overhype the difference in all these players. They're all slightly different players. Uh, but Vina is a guy who's showing like plus plus future power potential with an elite frame. Uh, one of the most pure swings in the class, just mechanically leveraged to get to impact now. So I think there is a lot to like with him. I think when you're talking about an impact hitter, it's him and Austin Hendrick. They do it in different ways. Hendrick is more of a, uh, an aggressive swing with kind of elite bat speed. Um, whereas Veen's is kind of that more pure, smooth left-handed swing. But I think part of that hype that being was getting early in the season was because he plays in Florida and he just has the advantage of getting out there earlier. A lot of heat at the high level gets to see those kind of high end priority high school and, and college guys in Florida and in Texas and in Arizona and SoCal. Those guys are, are definitely going to get more attention. That's just a product of the season and how kind of the scouting schedule works. So Austin Hendrick, who I don't even think he got started at all, and if he, when he was playing, he's going to be facing much worse pitching uh, competition. So I think Hendrick is a guy who, and, and for most of these hitters, PCA uh, and Zach Veen, I think are different because they're in Florida and SoCal and can kind of still prove it against some solid pitching in the spring. Most of these hitters make their money over the summer. Uh, Austin Hendrick was one of the better hitters over the summer. Uh, again, the same is true for Robert Hassel, who may be the best pure hitter in the entire class. He led Team USA. Uh, was one of the best international players in the entire world last year as far as the WBSC is concerned. Um, but yeah, again, I think this outfield group, this high school outfield group is one of the most impressive at the top end that I've seen since I started covering the draft for Baseball America. Uh, and it just depends. Do you want the power upside of Veen? Do you want the elite bat speed and physicality that Hendrick has now? Do you want the pure hit tool and advanced approach of Robert Hassel? Do you want the um, really advanced hitter that PCA is on top of his outstanding center field defense. It's kind of pick your flavor. What do you prefer? Uh, and, and you can make a case for all these guys, but they all should be first round talents. And I'm expecting them all to go in that range again, if they're signable. Yeah. Every single one of these kids has a chance to go. It seems like in the top 20 picks, let alone, you know, just the first round. I mean, these mm -hmm. are really, really good players with a lot of promise that all have bright futures ahead. And it's just interesting seeing, you know, what the gap is and what order they'll actually go in. Mm -hmm. You can, you know, Tyler Soderstrom, a catcher from Northern California as well. There's people think is yeah. an elite high school. I think you could definitely throw him in to the top high school bats for sure. He's not an outfielder, but as far as his kind of hit and power tool is concerned, he's right up there with those guys. You know, one of the things that has stood out to me is it does seem there's a lot of talent in this draft. I feel like some years you get through the draft and by the time you get to pick number 19, you're talking about guys who are like, they're okay. Whereas mm -hmm. this year it feels like you've got, you know, 20, 25 guys that you can get yeah. excited about. Yeah, definitely. We've, we've talked about the depth of this class for a while now. And I think most, um, most scouts and scouting directors and evaluators would say this is one of the deeper classes in recent years. Now, how far back do we go? 2015, that 2011 draft. I think that's maybe up for a little bit more debate, but it's definitely deeper than the last two or three drafts we've had. And with that, there's always risers that'll just make this draft even more deep than we thought to begin with. Uh, you hit on two of them earlier, Nick York, a high school infielder from Northern California. Mm -hmm. Then there's other guys such as Ohio State catcher Dylan Dingler, who look at the bigger picture and the track record and the performance, and he rises. There's a couple of other players that you've highlighted that are rising and are guys to absolutely pay attention to. I want to start with some of the collegians. Jared Schuster, left-handed mm -hmm. pitcher out of Wake Forest. Alec Burleson, a first baseman, left-handed pitcher out of East Carolina. Elijah Dunham, an outfielder out of Indiana. In addition to Dingler, the Ohio State catcher. What is it about these four that you're hearing that have them rising and potentially moving up into higher draft slots? 
Yeah, probably the last the last two you mentioned would be easier to touch on Dunham and, and Burleson. I think these are guys who again fall into that college performer uh, kind of profile that teams feel good about. Uh, that generally rise. Uh, everyone seems to like the hit tools of Burleson. He's he's definitely a hitter as a pro. Uh, he has below average stuff on the mound, but he just has a really good feel to hit. Has performed pretty well. Doesn't have a ton of power, and he's a corner guy. So I think there might be some profile questions. He's not juiced up our list by any means, but I do think he's a pretty safe top five round pick for someone who really enjoys the bat. Kind of same thing with Elijah Dunham. He's not the toolsiest guy ever, but he does everything pretty well. Uh, has a good track record of hitting, and I've talked to a lot of guys who just really buy into the bat. I think Schuster's an interesting one because, uh, and we actually had a piece recently just on, on 10 players who have risen since the start of the season who you need to keep an eye on for one reason or another. Schuster was one of these. Uh, and it's just because of, how teams kind of prioritize or, or target left-handed pitching in the first round. Obviously, left-handed pitching is a commodity. You really want to find it uh, and get impact arms from the left side because there just aren't a ton of those guys. But I was surprised with the, uh, the consistency that lefties were taking in the first round. I think going back from 2010 to 2019, anywhere from three to seven left-handers were taken in the first round, never fewer than three, which I was a little surprised by. I just thought, Maybe there would be a year or two where there weren't a ton of left-handers who are, who are at that range. But this year we have three lefties ranked in the first-round range. That's uh, Asa Lacey, our top-ranked pitcher, uh, Garrett Crochet, and uh, Reed Detmers, the Louisville lefty. Those are the three we have in the first-round range right now. Schuster is the, the highest-ranked guy that's outside of that first-round range. So I'm curious to see if because of the jumps he's taken in velocity, because of his improved strike throwing, if he's going to rise up into that first round to a team who's just like, hey, Lefty, lefties are a commodity. We, we buy the kind of uptick in his performance and his stuff and his strike throwing. Uh, we think he's going to be a, a lefty that can start and get into the 96, 97 mile per hour range with his fastball with a really good changeup and a solid curveball as well. I think that's a guy who wouldn't surprise me if he jumped into the first round range. And I'm just kind of curious to see how teams handle the lefties because we had two prep guys, Nate Savino, who enrolled early at Virginia, and then Daxon Fulton. Uh, who's still in this class but had Tommy John surgery. Those two were definite first-round talents. Uh, and kind of with with them being dinged and not being in the draft class, I'm curious to see how kind of teams will evaluate the left-handers in those classes. So those are some interesting guys from my perspective that, that have risen up boards, and I'm curious to see where they go. Yeah, you know, another lefty that I, I want to bring up is Adam Seminaris at Long Beach State. Yeah. Really, really got off to a great start this year. You know, you talk about college pitchers only making four starts. How much can they really do for themselves? This is the guy that you can say, yeah, really, really did a lot for himself. Really just overwhelmed the competition. Open with six scoreless innings and 11 strikeouts against Cal. And really his coup de grace against Mississippi State, eight innings, one hit, no runs, two walks, 10 punch outs. And then, oh, by the way, his final start struck up 14 <laughs> over seven innings against Xavier. This was a left-handed pitcher who was interesting coming into the year. He pitched in the Cape Cod League. He pitched for a major program at Long Beach State. People knew him. But mm -hmm. what he did in his four starts this year was just absolutely insane. Uh, the total damage, 36 strikeouts and three walks in 22 innings. He was showing four pitches, able to mix them all, throw them all for strikes. There was definitely a plus out pitch there in the changeup. Fastball was 88-92, but it plays up a little bit with some deception. We see a lot of lefties in the major leagues were able to succeed with that. A low 90s fastball, a plus changeup, and the ability to mix their pitches. This is someone that, that I think really, really has a chance to, to not only go well in the draft, but find himself pitching the major leagues someday. I mean, you watch him pitch, and there are a lot of lefties who look like that in the major leagues. I mean, on the low end, I think about a guy like Devin Smeltzer, who I saw last year at AAA and then made his way up to the Twins. Seminaris does everything Smeltzer does, except he does it all a little bit better. You know, maybe he's yeah. a back-end starter. Maybe he's more. This is a really good pitcher that, that we're hearing is rising up draft boards. And I think, you know, kind of going back to that, college lefties who rise and teams like the more they see, he fits in that bucket. No doubt. He's one of the better pure pitchers in the class, I'd say. He doesn't have the loudest stuff. But again, like you said, he does everything on the mound really well at an advanced level. All right. So to finish up, Carlos and I are going to have a little bit of fun here. It's a little bit of a fun exercise, a podcast mock draft. You see Thanks. the mock drafts online, some of the more official ones where Carlos really dives in with clubs and, and shows you what he's hearing. Well, Which, by the way, significantly more difficult this year with no, no 
scouts <laughs> out of games. So it'll be fun to figure out as we get closer. But yeah, we're going to have a little fun to do our own mock draft, kind of just who we would pick. We'll go maybe 15 deep. And Kyle, if you want to keep going after that, I'm happy to do it. But, All right. Well, as host, I'm claiming the number one pick. You good with that? Oh, come on. No, actually, I want to take the number one pick because I'm going to throw a curveball at you. I want to see how you react. All right. You know what? Let's do it. Carlos, right. so, uh, you're the number one pick for the Detroit Tigers. I'm going to take Spencer Torkelson because I'm very curious to see who you take at number two. Yeah. Like you said earlier, I think if I were actually picking, I, uh, Austin Martin would probably be my guy, but I just want to put you on the spot right here. Yeah, so with Baltimore, we'll take Austin Martin again. He's a really, really good player. You, you talk about potential plus hit, average power, ability to you know do some things with his legs. Again, whether it's above average speed or plus speed, he can do some things on the base pass for you. He can play the outfield. We talk about the arm issues, but potentially with some work, and frankly, just a lot of times it's mental work with that kind of stuff too. You can get that back a little bit. Like you said, there's a lot of things to like there. He's performed at a major, major program the Vanderbilt. Asa Lacey is interesting because this is a really, really, really good left-handed pitcher. I mean, mm. one of the better ones that's come around in some time, and the college ranks at least, and someone that a lot of people have very high expectations for, and justifiably so. Ultimately, to me, you're going to take the bat over the arm just because we see how pitchers will break your heart time and time and time again. Yep. Uh, so for that reason, I take Austin Martin number two. Cool. All right. Number three, I think might be the easiest spot in the draft to pick just because I think you take whoever's left of these top three. Like you said, Lacey's uh, a phenomenal left-handed pitcher, uh, the best pitcher in the class. I think he's above average or better across the board. Um, really love the delivery, really love the slider, love the fastball, like everything about him, feel safe about him, uh, as safe as you can feel for pitchers. So Asa Lacey will be pick number three for the Marlins for me. And number four for Kansas City. Again, it, this is where it gets interesting because Nick Gonzalez is a prolific hitter who's put up video game numbers playing in New Mexico State. Now, for those who don't know, New Mexico State, it's at elevation. You see a lot of juiced offensive numbers there. He also was not playing the best competition by any stretch. But he went out and hit in the Cape Cod League with Wood last summer, really solidified that, yes, this is a kid who can hit. If you look at the numbers outside of New Mexico State in his college career, which is a larger sample than the Cape Cod League, it's more good, not great, uh, especially in terms of the power output. Hmm. But, again, you're talking about someone who the track record is great, showed you some ability to do some things with the glove. The arm is fine. I think he ends up being a second baseman who hits for a high average. I think you're getting a good player for that reason. Uh, I'm going to take Nick Gonzalez number four with the Royals pick. Okay. Awesome. Uh, Hancock would probably be the uh, most obvious pick here, but I'm going to go in another direction. Uh, I really like Garrett Mitchell. I love his tool set. I love how he's going to probably be a plus defensive center fielder. Uh, I love his raw power. I think if he can get into a good uh, player development system and kind of refine the swing a little bit, I think he has the ability uh, to tap into that power. He's got the bat-to-ball skills. He's got the hand-eye coordination. He's got the bat speed. It's just a matter of kind of getting in a consistent uh, approach and being able to leverage that swing. Um, even if he doesn't hit for a ton of power, I think he's always going to be a guy who hits for a high average thanks to that speed, uh, kind of regardless of what sort of hitter he ends up being. He's going to be a guy who I think will find a way to get on base, uh, become a disruptive base runner. Um, I'm going to go to Garrett Mitchell right here at number five for the Blue Jays. I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball at you as well at number six and go ahead and take Heston Kierstad, the right field. Oh, let's go. Love it. Still believing in, in the bat. You look at the track record of everything he did in the SEC, and he has some pedigree. It's like this guy came from nowhere. He was yeah. a high school draft prospect. He had a brother who played pro ball. I just see a potential everyday right fielder with real left-handed power, and that's a very valuable asset to have. All right, so our top-ranked talent on the board right now is Emerson Hancock, number four on the BA board. Um, so with the Pirates, I'm still going to avoid that. I'm going to get better left-handed power than Kierstad. I'm taking Zach Veen. I think he has a legit chance to get to 70 power. He's got a beautiful swing, my personal favorite amateur swing that I've seen since I started. Just picturesque, easy, loose, handsy. Love the body. think he's going to wind up in a corner, but that's fine. I think he's going to be an impact hitter. I love his eye at the plate. I love his ability to kind of spit on pitches out of the zone. I think he's going to be a high on-base percentage guy with power. Uh, so I'm taking Zach Fiend, number seven for the Pirates. 
This is where it gets interesting to me around this number eight spot. When you look at who is remaining, you have two very accomplished college pitchers in Emerson Hancock and Max Meyer. We've mentioned Austin Hendrick is a very, very prolific high school outfielder. Reed Detmer is the left-hander out of Louisville. You have some of those high school arms. I might surprise some people here. I'm going to go Uh-oh. with Max Meyer at Minnesota. I like it. Yeah. Max Meyer is a guy who a lot of people are starting to really fall in love with. So I like his pick. Yeah, and again, it's not any kind of knock on Emerson Hancock, who is a very, very good pitcher. I think with Meyer, after watching some video and, and talking to some people about him, I mean, the stuff is just so, so loud. And yes, there's concern that six-foot right-hander, but he's a good athlete. He holds his stuff. He pitches into the ninth. You know, this isn't a small right-hander who it's max effort and you see, oh yeah, he's touching 97 in the first, but by the fifth, he's sitting at 90 miles an hour and worn himself out. Mm -hmm. This kid holds his stuff. You see a power fastball. You see a a plus or better slider. You see- Oh, it's definitely better. You see the athleticism. I just like the total package there. I think you are potentially getting an impact, potential top half of the rotation starter with Meyer. For nine, I'm just going to make this one simple. I think Emerson Hancock has fallen far enough. I'm going to stop the slide here. I think it's great value. Uh, I still really like Emerson Hancock. I think he's one of the better pure strike thrower and command guys uh, at the college level. I think he has a plus fastball. I think he's got a plus changeup, uh, depending on how good the slider becomes. So I think we'll we'll kind of determine his, his overall role in the future. But I love the body of the frame. Um, I wish he had a little bit higher of an arm slot to maybe get a few more whiffs on the fastball um, but I just think he does everything so well um, across the board that I think it's just too good of a player to let him fall further than this so I'm going to take the Georgia righty at number nine for the Rockies. Number 10 pick for the Angels is interesting because it goes back to the debate of you never ever 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 draft for major league need. Mm-hmm. We do see teams draft for organizational need from time to time Mm-hmm. And that's why Patrick Bailey at North Carolina State, the catcher, is interesting to me. The Angels just frankly do not have a long-term catcher anywhere in their system. By the same token, I look at some of the players available, and it, it's riskier, but just everything we've heard about Mick Abel is really, really enticing. And for me, it's hard to pass that up. And so for the Angels at number 10, I would draft Mick Abel, the right-hander out of Jesuit High School up in Portland. I just think that there's a lot of potential there. Some of the red flags you see with other high school right-handers aren't as present with him. Mm-hmm. And the Angels have drafted position players exclusively under scouting director Matt Swanson. And, and again, so I think Patrick Bailey could be a pick here and would be a good fit for what they need organizationally. But I just think Mick Abel has a chance to be dynamite superstar pitcher in a few years and Mm -hmm. i think you take that chance all right awesome so we got mick abel off the board here so for me at number 11 with the white Sox, i think the guys i'm deciding between are reed detmers uh austin hendrick uh and i think patrick bailey i like that garrett crochet and jared kelly are interesting to me um but i think personally i like the other three better for a lot of the reasons we've talked about already on the podcast uh, I love Austin Hendricks' swing. I know I'm probably biased towards a lot of these high school players who I've seen more, but he's got the bat speed. I think he has the mentality to make all the adjustments he's going to need to make in the future. We've already seen him show the ability to make some of these mechanical adjustments he needs uh, to kind of time up some of this elite level of velocity without all these timing mechanisms in his swing that he had to create to keep himself back. Um, I, I don't think he's ever going to have an issue with velocity thanks to that bat speed. I love the impact potential. Uh, and I love his mentality just as a baseball player. So I'm going to Austin Hendrick, uh, number 11 to the White Sox. Number 12 to the Reds. This is where I pop Patrick Bailey. Again, just a really good catcher who has the ability to be a, a true two-way guy behind the plate. He can hit. He can defend. You have to evaluate the talent, not just the profile. But at the same time, he's plenty talented. You love the position. You love the way it projects out. And for me, Patrick Bailey would be the pick at number 12 to the Reds. All right, 13 to the Giants, um, deciding between three pitchers, Detmers, Jared Kelly, and Garrett Crochet. Uh, Detmers is the last guy we have in the top 10, so I'm just going to keep it simple, take Reed Detmers. He doesn't have the most upside in this class, but I've talked to a lot of guys who think he has the highest baseline. Uh, He just knows what he is. He's a very, maybe the best command pitcher in the class. 
got a really good curveball that can be effective. Uh, I don't need the overpowering fastball with him. I think he's got enough below to do what he needs to do on the left side. Taking Reed Detmers. Moving on to the Rangers now at the 14th overall pick. There's an appeal taking Jared Kelly, the hometown kid from Texas. I think that looking at the rest of the players, that's where I would go. Kelly has shown premium stuff for a long time. There are a lot of other really good options. We talked about some of these high school hitters, Robert Hassel, Pete Crow Armstrong, Tyler Soderstrom even. But we do have Kelly as the highest remaining player. It just makes sense for me here for Texas to go with the hometown kid at Jared Kelly. Nice. Kyle, steering a little bit away from his typical narrative here by taking not one but two prep right-handers in the first round no 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 here's what i said so so you know you talk about the narrative to me high school catchers that's the profile if you go back and look at it that is just yeah awful. that's definitely a risky one too i thought you were the in-house awful. skeptic of high what, school you know the high school yeah. right-handers there are plenty of good high school right-handers what it yeah. is is historically and i wrote about this you can find the article on baseballamerica.com over the past 15 years or so the best high school right-handers are the ones that typically get picked numbers 30 to 40-ish. They outperform the ones that are taken numbers 1 to 15, almost like clockwork every year since about 2002. And part of that is because at the top of the draft, you take the guys with the now velocity. But in high school, guys who throw that hard that young a lot of times break down, whereas it's the guys who are more athletic, easy deliveries, stuff's a little bit lighter, but they're going to grow into their velocity as pros that go a little bit later on. And that's why we typically see the guys taking 30 to 40 outperforming the guys taking, you know, one to 15 or so among high school right-handers. But again, a guy like Mick Abel who checks all the athletic boxes, he's not just a flamethrower who can't do anything else. You feel good about that. And Jared Kelly has done a lot. He's a good pitcher. There's a lot of good things there. And mm-hmm. I do believe then that you, you take the talent, especially at the top of the draft, yeah. and try not to overthink it too much. All right, so 15 for me. I think this is the last pick we'll do. 15 sound good to you, Kyle? You know what? I'm having fun. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Okay. All right, but for the Phillies at 15, I was hoping that he got here. I'm really high on Robert Hassel's hit tool. I think, again, like I mentioned earlier, he has a chance to be the best pure hitter in the high school class. That player typically is not available at 15 uh, because of how this one plays out. I'm very happy to get him at this spot. Uh, I just think he's uh, solid at every kind of phase of the game. Maybe a stretch for center field at the next level, but I think he'll be a good defender in a corner um, with above average or better hitting ability, maybe some pop, good runner, good defender, like the all-around package and love the bat. Taking Robert Hassel, number 15 for the Phillies. Sticking in the prep outfielder range, I'm going to go Pete Crow Armstrong at uh, number 16 to the Chicago Cubs. One of the things with Crow Armstrong that's been interesting just talking to evaluators is no, no fault of his own, but the Southern California left-handed hitting outfielder who shows really promising hitting ability, but questions about the power. That was Mickey Moniak. That was Blake Rutherford. And it scared a few people off. Crow Armstrong has a really good chance to stay in center field. He plays fast. He plays hard. He shows the intangibles you want. He does have the natural hitting ability. And, you know, he was pretty tired over the summer, which is understandable. He's playing in almost every major showcase. It wasn't the type of summer a lot of people wanted to see out of him. But he came back this spring and was torching people. I mean, absolutely crushing the baseball against the really, for my money, the best high school competition in the nation uh, in Southern California playing in you know, CIF Southern Section Division One baseball. So for me, I just I see a really, really good baseball player who has tools. And and I put a lot of stock into that. You can have raw tools, but you got to be able to turn them into skills on the field. And Pete Crow Armstrong has shown an ability to do that for a long time now. All right, so 17 for the Red Sox. Uh, I think, again, I'm just going to take the best talent on the board here. Uh, I think Garrett Crochet has some of the biggest upside in the class. I'm less concerned of the reliever risk. I think he's a good strike thrower. Um, obviously, there is some reliever risk, but I think he gets it across the plate enough uh, to kind of handle a starting role. Has one of the better fastballs in the class. Has a, a wipeout slider as well. Tough angle. That's a 6'6 six, six lefty. Uh, I'm going to go with Garrett Crochet out of Tennessee, who I think – could have risen to a top 10 kind of talent with a full spring to kind of show that stuff in a starter's load over the whole spring. So crochet is my pick at 17 for the Red Sox. Moving into the next pick, number 18 to the Arizona Diamondbacks. I'm going to go with Tyler Soderstrom here. And we talked about high school catchers. I should say domestic U.S. 
high school catchers. The, the players who are drafted from Puerto Rico, there is some success there in terms of high school catchers. But domestic U.S. high school catchers is far and away the single worst draft profile by a long shot. That said, the guys who you know can hit and are confident enough will hit even if they move to another position, mm-hmm. you feel fine drafting. There are a lot of guys who are drafted a catcher, but it's because of their bat moved off of catcher and still got themselves to the major leagues. Will Myers being one prominent example. Tyler Soderstrom is the pick here because you believe in the bat. If he can stay at catcher, awesome, great. If he's able to hit and still be a really good left fielder, third baseman, whatever, mm-hmm. there's still a good player there. So that's a long-winded way of me saying I would take Tyler Soderstrom with this pick because you believe in the bat. If he can stay behind the plate, awesome. If not, not worried about it. All right, I'm reacting to the Mets. I'm going to take the college equivalent of Tyler Soderstrom. I'm going Austin Wells. I think he's far and away the best bat available after you took Soderstrom. I think there's a, a reasonable drop-off between Wells and the next best bat available. Again, like Soderstrom, not a lock to stick behind the plate, uh, but I think the bat and the power combination is good enough to warrant a pick here. I think he's going to provide value in a lineup wherever he winds up defensively. And with the robo-ump stuff, who knows how catcher defense will be evaluated in the future. Um, I just really like the bat, so I'm taking Austin Wells here at number 19 to the Mets. Number 20 to the Brewers, I'm going to go with Ed Howard, the shortstop out of Mark Carmel High School, greater Chicago area, Midwestern kid, one of the better high school shortstops in the class, well, really the best high school shortstop in the class. Yeah, I know you've liked him a lot since last summer. Again, checks a lot of boxes. You talk about, you know, athletic high school middle infielders who play defense. He's pretty squarely been in first round consideration around this spot for a long time. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's where I go at Howard here at number 20 to the Milwaukee Brewers. Cool. All right. I'm going to follow your lead and I'm going to take a short top as well. I'm going to go a little bit further down our board and take Nick Lofton, shortstop out of Baylor. I think he's a guy who started to improve his stock, showing a little bit more power this spring and the limited sample that he got. But he's a guy who isn't the toolsiest player in the world, but is a pretty heady college performer, does everything pretty well, solid bat, can handle shortstop, not going to be a gold glover probably, but can handle the position every day. Um, And I think the Cardinals are a team who really have shown that they do pretty well with this kind of player. So I'm taking Nick Lofton at number 21 to the Cardinals. That is very, very true. College infielders, the Cardinals are the best place they can go. If I'm Nick Lofton or any other college infielder and I get drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals, I am ecstatic because I know they're going to get the best for me and develop me right and get me to the major leagues. They do it again and again and again and again. Number 22 with the Nationals is, is interesting just because we've seen their one team that has not been scared off by A, Scott Boris, and B, pitchers with injury issues. JT Ginn checks both of those boxes, and that's where he's a possibility here. I am going to go with Nick Bitsko, the high school right-hander, uh, just because, again, he's, he's very, very talented. He's right in the mix of, of the best high school right-handers in this class. The Nationals have done a decent job with high school right-handers, or high school pitchers, I should say, and Bitsko is the highest-ranked player on our board still. That would be the pick. I'm bummed you took... Uh, Bitsko, that was going to be my next pick with Cleveland. I think he's a guy that checks a lot of their boxes. Young for the class, high school pitcher. The Indians have not been afraid to take high school arms lately. Uh, in the first round, would have loved him. They love young guys. Uh, now I think the, the group of players I'm looking at are a bunch of college right-handers. There are a number of diff- different guys we could go with here. Cade Cavalli, JT Ginn, Cole Wilcox, Carmen Majinski, and Tanner Burns are the next best on our board right now. Ah, uh, man, this one's tough. I'm going to go with Carmen Majinski. I don't think he has the highest upside of these guys, but I think he has a lot of starter traits. I like the body. I think he can induce a lot of ground balls. I think there's more potential with the slider. He's shown plus at times. Wasn't quite as loud this spring. Um, but again, like you said with the Nationals, I believe in Cleveland's ability to develop arms, uh, and I think they could do a good job with a number of these pitchers, uh, but I'm going to take Majinski. Yeah, you're right. When it comes to developing pitchers, the Cleveland Indians are the single best organization in baseball in doing so. The Dodgers are the best developing position players. The Indians are the best developing pitchers. And you almost feel good about any arm they get into their system reaching his mm-hmm. peak ability, whether that's they acquire him via trade and the draft. Uh, when it comes to pitching, yeah, that's, that's a good place for, for any pitcher to wind up. 
I'm going to go a little bit off the board here and, and surprise some people. With the 24th pick to Tampa Bay, I'm going to go with Alika Williams, shortstop out of Arizona State. This is a player that is just a really, really, really good defender. He does not strike out. He makes a lot of contact. This is just a really good ball player who has the instincts and is going to get the best from his ability. Okay, cool. 25 with the Braves, still looking at the same college pitching group, just kind of how the board is playing out. I think Cade Cavalli or Chris McMahon would be my picks here for Atlanta. Um, I really like what Cavalli checks on paper. Uh, he's got a great frame, picturesque delivery, one of the better bodies and deliveries in the draft. Gets in the mid-90s with ease, has a really, really good slider in the 87 mile per hour range. I think the Braves have done a good job turning out pitchers as well. Um, so I'm going to take Cade Cavalli out of Oklahoma to Atlanta with the 25th pick. With the A's, I'm going to go Tanner Burns, the right-hander out of Auburn. He's been Auburn's Friday night guy. He's long performed. He's a good pitcher. He's accomplished. And again, you just kind of look at the board as a whole. Yeah, I mean, when you look at who's available, a steady, good pitcher who has a chance to become a solid back-end starter, that's valuable. Mm -hmm. Nice. All right, 27 in the Twins. Still looking at some of these college arms. I think they're still in play here. And then also looking at a number of these college bats who are on the board a little bit outside of that top 30 we have on our board. I think, again, for me, this is where I start thinking that Jake Teagan's talent is just too good. I know there are a lot of risks with him. Uh, he's a draft-eligible sophomore. Uh, he's, he's turned down first-round um, pick money. Previously, he has a lot of uh, leverage. But I saw this kid in high school. It's New College. I think the stuff – fits way higher than this on the board when healthy. Uh, so I'm going to just take a risk on the talent. Hope to sign him. JT Ginn's fastball and slider combo is too good. Again, another guy. I love his bulldog mentality. He's shown enough strikes and control in college to where I think he can be one of those undersized righties uh, in a starting role. The stuff's just too good for me to pass up here. I'm going JT Ginn. Speaking of stuff that's just too good to pass up here, with the 28th pick to the Yankees, I'm going to go Jared Jones, the right-handed pitcher out of La Parada High School and just outside of Los Angeles. It's explosive, explosive stuff. It's mm -hmm. mid to upper 90s fastball with life. It's got a power slider. He shows you feel for changeup. He's an incredible athlete. Again, there are people who are fearful of the undersized right-hander demographic, mm -hmm. but he just the athleticism and the explosiveness gives him a chance to be really really special down the road he came back this spring he was making people say wow the delivery okay. looked a lot more smooth and easy this spring too i really like the development he showed yeah the delivery is better command the control all of it was trending up in the right direction all right uh with the final pick of the first round to the dodgers at 29 you said it earlier the dodgers are the best team in baseball at developing position players so i'm going to take a personal cheese ball of mine pound for pound i think he might be the most talented player in this class that's mason Wynn, the two-way player out of texas there's some similarities with jared jones here jones is a two-way player in high school um elite athleticism uh i think mason Wynn has upside as a pitcher or hitter i think i've come around to preferring him as a hitter uh he's a plus runner plus arm strength athleticism needs to refine a lot of his game defensively kind of clean up some of what he does uh, maybe slow the game down a little bit but he's a guy who put on one of the best Jupiter performances on both sides of the ball that scouts have ever seen last fall I think he's a guy who I would love to see in the Dodgers system in general this is definitely risky just because of the profile but I love the tools love the upside and I got a fallback option with him on the mound if the hitting thing doesn't really work out so I'm going Mason Wynn out of Texas and as the commissioner says, that concludes the first round. It's always fun to do these kind of things. And again, I just want to remind all our listeners out there, this was purely Carlos and I. Having some fun. Thinking <laughs> who we think makes sense. This is not any of these guys connected to specific teams. There was no insider information here. This was strictly a, let's lay out for our listeners what the conversations that are being had are, how these players are being seen and how they stack up, what's the information we have, and ultimately, what are some of the possibilities of where they can go? Please do not take this as, 
oh, I heard on the BA podcast that they <laughs> took uh, so-and-so to this team and that's what's going to happen. That is not it in any way, shape, or form. So that caveat, uh, hopefully we were able to provide a lot of good draft info for you on this podcast. The draft could be two months away. It could be three months away. We still do not have a draft date. The expectation amongst high-level officials is they will be given at least one full month's notice. It's not like they're going to spring it on them and say, hey, the draft's going to be June 15th and tell them that on June 1st. There will be about a month to prepare is the expectation, but we still have to see exactly when that date is going to be and how many rounds it's going to be and how teams treat this one. This is certainly the most unique draft of our lifetimes for a number of reasons and, and a unique draft in the lifetimes of most veteran evaluators out there as well. Yeah, no doubt. It was fun to, to talk through this. It's always fun to run through a mock, even if it's just kind of who we, who we like, who we prefer, uh, kind of what we would do. Just fun talking draft, fun talking baseball when baseball's not being played. So hopefully, if, if nothing else, we were able to entertain you guys for an hour or so. So thanks for listening. Absolutely. And once again, feel free to give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Carlos Colazzo, I'm Kyle Glazer. This has been another edition of the Baseball America podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Mm-hmm.